0: Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim and finally we will have an episode with Tom Velasco back with Trevor Adams and I. Um, We are so happy to have Tom back and this recording uh, was made a couple months ago but he had just gotten done uh, traveling and doing a few different things Uh, but we're very excited to have Tom back. Um, This episode is probably going to be a little bit different than some of our typical episodes. We're going to engage deeply with Augustine's Confessions, Book 9, but we're also going to discuss some personal um, stories of sort of addiction and uh, how we have felt in some cases sort of instantly changed and other cases not so instantly changed. So in book nine, Augustine talks about uh, how God freed his will to love him. He says um, in, in book nine, but where was your right hand in that stretch of time? So weighed down with its years from what deep, what deepest hidden place was my free choice in an instant called out? The choice to place my neck under your yoke, and my shoulders under your light load. The load that was yours, Jesus Christ, my my helper, who brought me out of slavery. How delectably it all ha- it happened! All of a sudden, all of those in- inane uh, de- delectations weren't there any longer. I'd been terrified of losing them, na- losing them, but now I was delighted to turn them loose. So Augustine describes it as if it's almost in an instant, his whole set of desires changed um, because of this grace uh, that that unlocked his will, basically, that freed his will um, from his previous desires. So, so Tom Trevor and I actually. Uh, get a little bit personal about some of those things that we have struggled with, and we just ask generally about what this means for the Christian life, that in some cases it seems to be, uh, sometimes it seems like it happens in an instant, and other times change takes even a lifetime. Um, So I hope that you appreciate this uh, little more personal episode. Um, I would also like to say at this sort of long introduction, we've had a couple of really good questions on our Facebook page. Um, I believe they are open that anyone can see them. Uh, West and Adam asked us about a episode that we had done um, almost two years ago uh, where I said something about Christianity and enlightenment robes and he connected it to Hegel and just had some really nice things to say about how good the podcast has been for him. As well as Wendell Cook also asked us about the priesthood of all believers and what we've seen in the church fathers um, as far as that's concerned. So, all that to say, we really do appreciate your engagement and your questions, uh, so please keep sending those in. We would love to hear from our audience um, and love to hear what kind of questions and things are going through your mind um, and hopefully we'll be able to feature some of those on the podcast. Uh, I was able to ha- answer uh, Wendell and Weston's Adam uh, Weston's questions on Facebook but if you have questions that might require a little more engagement uh, you know hopefully we can feature some of those on upcoming podcasts. So I'm sorry about the long delay but please do keep uh, sending your questions into Facebook um, as well as you know think about supporting us on patreon. Leaving a comment or review on iTunes, all of those things help um, keep our engagement up. We're nearing uh, 500 likes on Facebook, and we're really getting some good traction. We're also on uh, Twitter at theology uh, at the, the it is at theology x i a n, uh, which is kind of a shorthand for Christian theology. So. Uh, Please do check those out. And uh, yeah, with no further ado, here is um, our discussion of St. Augustine's Confessions, Book 9, and the struggle for change um, in the Christian life. Thanks for listening. All right, so uh, Tom is back with us. Welcome, Tom. Thank you, Chad and
1: Trevor. It's good to be back.
2: Yes, glad you're back, Tom.
0: Thank you. So you have bought a house, traveled to Europe, uh, been living... uh, Somewhat of a hectic life, I guess, and all of that, right? You still uh, teaching in the midst of all of that as well. Yep, yep. Uh, but uh, but we are happy to have you back. Any anything that you learned about Augustine in your time away?
1: <laughs> uh, no, actually, I hadn't thought about Augustine until um, this morning <laughs> when I decided to really quickly read Book Nine. <laughs> <laughs> So, sorry guys, um, that was not, I mean, I have inten- uh, would have liked to, I love, love learning about Augustine, just haven't done any of it.
0: <laughs> no, no, that's fine, I was just kind of...
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I gotcha. Uh, all right,
0: well, we are uh, recording book nine, um, we have not released book eight, which we'll do, I'll try to do that soon here on this break. Um, I'm actually really excited to go through book nine, because I actually just taught um, the The first nine books of the Confessions uh, last semester for two of my intro to theology classes, and we had to just rampage through book nine in like twenty minutes um, in class because uh, I talk too much. So uh, there's some stuff that that we should get to at the end of book nine that I really want to get to at the end of book nine. Um, but I but before we get there, which is a lesser studied section, uh, basically. Book nine begins with Augustine, the Christian. Um, And so, you know, we – Trevor and I went through his transformation in book eight um, and exactly how he moved from the place of uh, sort of being shackled to his – shackled to his sin um, and then he was sort of seduced forward by charity um, and and God gave – essentially, it's a story of a change of will – uh, which is only going to happen through the power of grace uh, of God to unshackle Augustine to his um, bad habits. So August, uh, so Trevor and I went through the problems of habits and um, uh, poorly formed desires and this sort of thing. Um, but so Augustine is unleashed. Um, and then he says uh, at the beginning of Book Nine, "Master, I am your slave." Well, so this is a translation that I was using in class, Sarah Rudin's translation, which may be as good a place as any to start, actually. Uh, so she says, "Master, I am your slave. I am your slave and the son of your female slave. But you have torn my chains apart. I will offer up a sacrifice. Uh, offer up a sacrifice, the praise of you. Let my heart and tongue praise you, and let all my ba- my bones say, Master, who is like you?" Um, and then he said, "He says, let them say it, and you, so that is God, answer me and say to my soul, I am your rescue." So um, I-, I guess I wanted to start there. So now, so Augustine has been unchained from his uh, desires for sex and for power and for money and for fame, but he says he's a slave. In her translation, one, I think we could talk about whether or not it's appropriate to talk ab- to call Augustine a slave. That is her translation for the word servus, which could be servant or slave. But second of all, so if Augustine is now in servitude to God, what does it mean that he has uh, been unchained from his poor desire, his, poor, his, his, his malformed desires?
1: <clears throat> well, I think that is actually the question. I mean that's – and it's a question I think that plagues has always plagued Christians up to today. Right. I mean, it's really just riffing off of New Testament imagery. I mean, uh, you know, the, the scriptures speak of us being slaves to sin um, and then becoming bond servants to Christ. Right. Uh-huh. Um, but what does any of those things mean? That's super unclear. Right. Um, so, for instance, Uh, Whereas I I think all, I mean, Christianity has always taken it that when you become a Christian, there's that transference, right? I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am now a slave to Jesus. Does that, I mean, what is the practical effect of that? Does that mean that I no longer have that desire? Does that mean that I no longer struggle with that particular sin, right? Um, I mean, this comes back up in his talking about his mother, right? About Monica, because her slavery was um, to alcohol uh, is what, you know, he references, he references again as he kind of runs through her story at the end of book nine. And he speaks in the same kind of language that, I don't know that he uses the word slave and I certainly don't know the Latin because I haven't been reading a Latin version. So I don't know if he says servus or not. Um, So for her,
0: her he uses two words, anchila and fabula. Um, so one of them
1: yeah there are variations on the same uh, but yeah yeah so so then but so when you break free from that slavery does that mean you don't use it anymore you don't do it anymore you know um, and that's never clear to me it's never clear it's not clear to me in scripture and it's not clear to me from what Augustine says because he doesn't he doesn't say, that he never has a, a concupiscent, as my translation says, desire. Again, he just talks about being free, no longer being a slave to that thing. Um, and it's basically, in my mind, it's kind of a, a a kind of a frustrating vagueness or ambiguity that exists because Christians have wrestled now for two thousand years uh, with it. Right? I mean, we say that we by putting faith in christ receiving salvation uh as augustine said you know he adds he, he includes baptism and the the regeneration of baptism we've said that that leads to a change um everybody right. seems to acknowledge that means forgiveness and a hope of heaven um uh but the the difficult thing is to what degree am i supposed to have literally been changed and when somebody who say is an alcoholic, who converts becomes a christian is no longer a slave to alcohol now becomes a slave of christ does that just mean automatic freedom from his addiction and of course in practical terms like when you're working in the church and you encounter an alcoholic struggling with such things you find that it rarely results in a real freedom from his addiction i've seen instances where people convert and they seem to immediately break free from addiction but the vast majority of them continue to struggle with the addiction and sometimes continue to do so for the rest of their lives. So does that mean they're not a Christian? Does that mean that being free from uh, the slavery of an addiction is different from actually ceasing to do it? And then when Augustine speaks about it in his own life or in his mother's life, uh, does that mean that there was freedom in the sense that they stopped Doing it, Or with Augustine's, was it a, a cessation of his action? Uh, was it a cessation of the action and the desire? Like the desire go away? I mean, all of that is unclear, it seems to me.
2: My translation uses this phrase, you were emptying them. I'm assuming like those desires he doesn't want to have anymore. Out of me, emptying and refilling me with you, sweeter than all delights of flesh or blood. Um which at least implies some sort of like you know time it takes if if you're being emptied, it's not as if you yeah cease to have all desire um, and and this does seem at least a somewhat adequate adequate description of what really happens with addicts, right because what we seem to the little we do know about, addiction, which I'm obviously no expert in though, is that you, you basically are just sort of reprogramming your brain over quite a long period of time of resisting, um, to where eventually, uh, that sort of feedback loop of dopamine that your brain had once, (laughs) uh, relied on, it, it just starts, it just goes away, essentially no longer relies on it. And it can take a really long time. So that you will have those moments where you'll want to relapse, like when you're in a state where you're stressed or something, for example, because that's when you'll want dopamine again. And so then you'll you'll try to go back to it. And that's like a miraculous healing from addiction is like obviously possible and I'm assuming happens, but it's true that. Um, more often than not, I think what people are feeling is a renewed vigor more like to just really hate that sin Like they're finally at a place where because they because of probably some sort of spiritual awakening in their life and realizing how much they love God, that really um, puts them in a place where psychologically they really do hate their sin so that even when they sort of feel I said I guess, Uh, that really strong temptation it's maybe there's something deadened about it but yeah to use the language of um, servant or slave it might just be that it might be I don't know I mean I'm not saying this is exactly what Augustine thinks but I think one way to think of it is just you sort of are in that right mindset Um, you're in that servant mindset you might think like you you believe of yourself that you are to serve god and that allows you to sort of hate this hate your sin the same way that if you were really a servant to a like a person here on earth another human being you wouldn't uh do things that your master didn't want you to do so i i'm not you know i'm not like exactly clear on what augustine's actual thoughts are but he seems to at least from that passage, and I don't know if my translation's, you know, off, but using the language of emptying them out of me, if it's like a process that's happening, um, it may not be this all at once miraculous thing such that you'll never sin again, which I think is is obviously kind of naive, but it's more like taking a drug that slowly cures you, and you just keep being administered. Essentially, until you are cured. But
1: now, Chad. Yeah, Chad, yeah. I have a question, real quick, um, because yeah. I have a vague recollection of reading a quote of Augustine's at a certain point, um, uh-huh. in which he says something along the lines of, uh, and I'm going to butcher this. So, uh, something along the lines of uh, Adam, uh, Adam was free to sin and free not to. Uh, after Adam we were not free to not sin and now we are not right. free to sin the implication being something like we're incapable of sinning now that we have converted right is that a <laughs> is that faithful to what he said and is that what he means yeah so it's a good question
0: so there are like there they are usually um there are usually four versions of this, and I'm going to get them wrong. It's non pose, non peccare, pose, non peccare. I, I can't remember, but there's like, there's like four different ways that this is said, um, and, and they all have to do with various uh, sort of stages in, um, I guess you could sort of call it the order of salvation uh, dating back to Adam. Yeah, so it, it's not possible for us not to sin in the state that we're in now. Um, but I want to say that full justification is the case of it's not possible not to sin. That is the ultimate good. But I don't know that we're necessarily assumed to be in that uh, as soon as we make the transition to um, whatever that means to become a Christian. Oh
1: well, I, um, I, I'm so sure like, when I read it, I didn't read it in the context of, a, of an Augustinian work. But I do know okay. – like I know it was quoted by somebody. And I know the person quoting it, at least, applied – sorry, I hate having these vague references. There's nothing worse than somebody sitting up there and and saying, oh, I remember reading once somewhere, blah, blah, blah. But the person quoting it definitely implied that the state in which we are incapable of sinning is the state of the true believing Christian. And it – at least I remember it seemed like that's what it was saying from what I was reading in the text – you know, and 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 what's more is, of course, there is scripture to combat such a view, but there is scripture to justify such a view as well, right? Um, you know, in First John chapter three, I'm uh, gonna have to look up the the specific verse, but it says that God's seed abides in us once we're born again, and we cannot sin, right? Um, yeah, so I would say
0: um, I don't actually remember uh, where these are supposed to be. Oh, I guess it's uh, it's in the in Caridian, uh where Augustine says this. But yeah, so the the fourfold form of this is the pre-fall man Adam is able uh, is uh, he can sin um, and he ca- uh, and he can not sin yes. um, and then postfall man is he's not able not yes. to sin so he, he must, must sin. sin and then. Yeah. Then the reborn, the regenerated, the Christian, not yet glorified, but Christian, is able not to sin. And then the final glorified human is unable to sin. Non posse. So, yeah. That's, so
1: that's that is the glorified. Yeah. That's definitely not how I heard it. I heard it. There were three options, and the third is the born again, regenerated one, and he's incapable of sinning. It'd be. Are you actually looking at it right now, or? Yeah. So the one that you look has four. So now we are so so. According to that uh, reading, that translation, what it's saying for the born again, uh, regenerated person is now we are able not to sin, whereas we were not prior to regeneration. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's what what God does.
0: Um. What what Uh the the what grace does literally is grace gives us the ability to not sin.
1: Mm. right interesting yeah um,
0: and then and the final the final sort of uh the final union um of of our not, not you well our our final uh well if, if i guess if my advisor's right um, father mcconey thinks that augustine actually has a deification um uh, sort of uh, atonement theory, if you like, um, so that we become full participators in the divine nature. Mm. Uh, so glorification will be full participation in Christ's nature, such that we are unable to sin. Wow. And and that sort of the, the final working of grace is us coming to the state where we are unable to sin. So what? Okay. So if you don't take the deification view, at the very least, whatever the full working out of grace is, that we are so repaired to our pre state that we are again uh, or well, that actually we're sort of moved even above our pre state state uh, because we are unable to sin any longer.
1: Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's you know, this it's tough. I mean, thinking about these things in theological terms and then thinking about them in practical terms. Um, <laughs> right. Good. I mean, It seems to me that one of the big concerns that the church pastorally should have is how to deal with addiction because addiction is so, one, prevalent, rampant, and destructive. And then also, I think, because the course of our culture is to answer addiction in many instances, not always, by just saying, kind of ignore it. You know what I mean? Like, just like, unless it's something that is like, super destructive. I think our culture tends to say, um, let's just allow, let's normalize the addiction in a sense. And I'll, I'll give an, exa- an example. I listened to, so for our audience, many of whom I no doubt have not seen me, I have an addiction to food, right? To eating. I'm, I'm extremely overweight and struggle with uh, really poor eating habits and have for, you know, all of my life, pretty much like for the most part, 40 years. Um, And, you know, so so my experience with addiction is trying to uh, trying to do the thing which your normal person can do no problem. Right. And and whenever you have a a person who's not an addict, at least an addict in a certain way, dealing with an issue uh, in confronting an addict, it's the two are on very, very uneven playing grounds. What I mean is there's a it's really hard for, for the two to understand each other because for the person who's not the addict what they want to say is we'll just stop you know stop doing what you're doing right because if you don't stop doing what you're doing you're going to destroy yourself now i know this feeling because i come from a family of drug addicts and i've never been a drug addict so for me i've definitely had those times in my life where you try to reason with the drug addict and say you've got to stop this or else these bad things are going to happen as if it's just quite that simple right um, and right. no doubt what is the most, at least in the moment, freeing feeling and the moment which gives you the most peace is when you decide I'm not going to try to stop. I'm just going to go ahead and do the thing that I'm doing. And, and I, this, what really struck me with this is I, I listened to an episode of this American life. This came out a, a while back and it opens up with a woman who basically says, it kind of starts off where she says she's quote, coming out, uh, like coming out of the closet, so to speak as fat. That's what she says. I'm coming out as fat. And she goes on to explain that essentially she'd spent so much of her life in misery, trying diet fads and, you know, things of that nature, trying to beat uh, this addiction that those things just pounded her into the ground and made her feel awful and horrible, horrible, low self-esteem and that what she felt was the answer was to embrace it. To say, you know what, I am fat. That's just the way it is. Um, there's a lot more to this than just a choice. In some senses, there's a genetic passing. Blah blah blah. You know, she kind of goes on on all that stuff. And so she comes to the decision that what will actually enable her to have a much better life will be to just accept it, embrace it, eat what she wants when she wants, and like you know, just live with it. You know. And I'm just listening (laughs) to this and I go, I understand that feeling completely because when I make the choice to not worry about it, I feel way better all the time. And when I make a choice to really fight it, it's awful and horrible. And for me, and I'm not a depressive person at all, it has led to depression at times and certainly um, self-loathing and, you know what I mean, a sense of failure. You never want to talk about it to people because you know if you fail, then they're – <clears throat> they're aware of it all that kind of stuff. So I get what she's getting at. It certainly in terms of your mental health feels so much better. But at the end of the day, it doesn't change the fact that this stuff we're doing will actually destroy our bodies and will in fact kill us and does in fact ruin uh in certain ways our our uh our standard of living, right? I mean, it affects where we sit for instance in uh uh, you know and 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 how other people react to us it. like getting on an airplane for instance or whether or not i when i go to somebody's house whether or not i feel confident that i can sit on their furniture you know it affects your obviously your romantic life uh love life you know what i mean so it has a lot of really negative effects um that are damaging and harmful and and potentially destructive and even in death inducing you know um right. and it seems to me right that when we talk about a christian being <clears throat> set free and a Christian overcoming sin that one of the big things or the goal is, is essentially to literally save somebody's life, right? I mean, he whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Um, and so then the question is, is why is it that I, as a Christian, once I have put faith in Christ, why is it that I don't seem to necessarily have these immediate freedoms and and, and here's the other thing. Is there something I'm missing that if I were to do it, or, or maybe am I not the right kind of Christian, or am I not rightly embracing Christianity or something, that if I did those things, then the addiction would be gone forever. You know what right. I mean? Now, of course, I come at this as, because I believe I have lots of addictions and, and have had lots, and I have had addictions that I have overcome. And here's the weird thing. When I look back on addictions that I have overcome, I don't really know exactly how I did them, right? So, total <laughs> yeah. self-disclosure here. Uh, years ago, decades ago, I, for a period of time, shortly after this was, I guess, kind of, kind of in that little spot when the internet it had been in existence for a bit, but it was finally fast. Uh, I had developed a pornography addiction. Um, I think. I mean, I felt like an addiction, and then I overcame it without really trying very hard. I mean, in other words. There were no like 12 steps or something that I did. You know, it was kind of like a series right. of realizations and I just made certain decisions and it stopped, which I have counseled and worked with many people over the years who have a pornography addiction who can't do that, or at least seemingly can't, right? They they, they know how destructive it is. It has significant impacts on their families and they just cannot bring themselves to stop using. You know. So, yeah, Well, I I don't know how to transfer the two. Like, you would think since I have overcome one addiction, I would therefore be able to overcome another. But that has not proven to be the case.
2: You know, I, I uh, feel for this too. And especially your comment earlier when something's not destructive, it's just sort of like we all just turn our heads as a society. Mm -hmm. Because similarly, I think it was with my generation when the internet got fast or whatever, or at least by the time I got the fast internet, I, yeah, I think it was like 17. I was easily looking at way too much porn, but I think that by, by the time I really convinced like, Oh, I want to live a life for Christ. Similarly, I was able to give it up within it. You know, it still took like a year, but it was easy to give it up. Um, or at least relatively easy, I think, compared to most people like you described. And, again, I also don't really know how. I think it was just more like it actually started to kind of disgust me in ways. I think that's, that's my only theory. But there were there's plenty of other things. And even to this day, like, I'm, you know, I'm a student. I'm paid to be a student, too. I'm trying to, like, actually focus, you know, full time no matter what on – things I need to do and yet it's so much easier to stare at YouTube for sometimes literally up to just three hours straight and not do work I'm supposed to do yeah and things like that they're just completely brushed off because it's just like whatever you were lazy that day you were and but it is really annoying not being able to control because I'll literally get up on a day because there's a lot of unstructured free time when you're a graduate student and so it's just up to you you got to just muscle it through you got to do the thing And yet you'll just blow off a productive day just doing stupid things. Like just, you know, oh, and you'll convince yourself that I need to go do this. I need to do that. And you'll actually avoid work, essentially. And it's the worst when you do just blow it off by literally just sitting on the Internet or staring at your phone. And then you feel really bad because you know that you're easily just as addicted to these things Mm -hmm. as anyone can be addicted to anything else. And yet it's... Just nobody's there to chastise you, really, or put any pressure on you. But, um, and yeah, but then when you meet other people, like I have several family members who also are addicted to drugs, you just want to tell them, "Well, don't you care about this? Don't you care about this? You should just stop. Because if you cared, you'd stop." But then, when you have this ben- you know, seemingly at least benign addiction, um, that same pressure doesn't feel there, but. Anyway.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's funny you say seemingly benign because that's one of the, the things that, you know, most I mean, I honestly can't even think of an addiction that truly is benign. It's more like socially benign because, you know, you just I mean, I'm just starting to hear the words that are, are coming out about just how destructive these these uh, screen addictions are. You know what I mean? Are we I don't even think we know the full mm-hmm. ramification of just how how horrible those are going to be in our lives, you know, in a, in a big picture sense. Um, I did have a, a friend of mine who's an M.D. Uh, sorry, that's not exactly accurate. I just started telling an anecdote the wrong way. I have a friend who has a friend who's an M.D. And that that doctor told my friend that in his... Uh, actually, he's a pediatrician. He says uh, that there are two kinds of kids that he encounters. Those who have no allowance for screen time and those who have no restriction on free, on screen time. And he says, and the, the and he says they're two entirely different kinds of kids. You know what I mean? And and it's not just wow. an it's, this is not just a judgment assessment. He's talking about in terms of their health. Like one is a he says a health emergency, and one is like strong. You know, and and, and he and he is seeing that that the one group the no screen restriction just growing and growing, and he's saying it is absolutely destroying uh, these kids. You know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that is. uh, (laughs) We we've talked touched on a lot of subjects here. First of all, I I mean. I, I want to like you know this is I guess the podcast has taken a kind of different turn uh, than it normally does. I don't think we talk about ourselves too often yeah. um, so I, I I want to just sort of acknowledge and appreciate Tom for sharing so, some stuff as well as Trevor um, and you know hope hopefully you know this too will be beneficial to whoever's listening so that is to say, we're reading Augustine, and, and all of us are more sort of theologically or philosophically inclined, uh, but that, you know, we're reading this stuff in part because we think it is uh, beneficial to our lives as Christians. Mm. Um, so to what extent to what extent Augustine can help us really, let's say, help us be a read better reader of Scripture um, and, and and therefore uh, have a better sense of, of who God is, hopefully that is the case. Now, what we have basically uncovered is that Augustine just sort of we can almost say punts because uh, he doesn't exactly give us what is the secret sauce yeah. uh, to stop these addictions. Um, right. when, when you all were talking, I was thinking about uh, – I've smoked cigarettes off and on for a long time. Um, and the the, the the last time that I quit for the longest time, um, my therapist said, smoke cigarettes that are disgusting to you. Um <laughs> and he said smoke cigarettes that are disgusting to you and it was at the same time that I also developed a biking addiction um and so yeah. the combination of me riding uh, hundreds of miles a week and smoking uh natural American spirits which I thought were disgusting um, I would want to vomit uh, <laughs> after and I because like actually sometimes when I was done riding all I wanted was a cigarette and then I would smoke something that made me want to vomit and so the combination of Vomiting from exhaustion and bad cigarettes, I eventually just quit. Made
1: uh, for by the Camel nice. Corporation. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> whatever. I, don't, and, and, I don't know and, there's no Camel Corporation. I don't know. Whatever. Whoever makes Camel cigarettes or whatever.
0: I just, yeah, I don't. I don't know. Uh, but that was that was my that was the one that I was thinking about. But the the deal is, just because I told you a story about something that I quit, uh, doesn't mean I have a corner on the market for how to quit other things. Um, and like I said, in some respects, you could say I traded one addiction for another. Now I have a basement full of. I think I've got seven bikes at right now um, and so you know <laughs> i have a different addiction yeah uh but but maybe maybe more socially acceptable and certainly not as serious as the other ones uh that, that you all have described mm. so i just sort of wanted to acknowledge that and appreciate that and hopefully like i said provide a window into you know uh that one of the biggest problems in theology right now is the uh is the gap between what is sort of theoretical knowledge and practical knowledge. Um, Or that is like, you know, we could call it orthodoxy and orthopraxy. For a long time, it may be in large part due to the Enlightenment, at least that's some people's theories. uh, Christians too often just thought about how do we get our beliefs straight, but they weren't worried about how they get their lives straight. And so to be a Christian, first and foremost, just meant the set of things that you believed. Um, and it wasn't the the principles on which you acted, um, or it wasn't uh, the things that you did that made you a Christian. And you know, part of this is the problem between uh, you know grace alone versus uh, you know grace and works, and some of these sorts of things too. Um, but but hopefully, what we're seeing, and, and I think a lot of theology is trying to address, is that Christians are also called to holiness, um, and Christians are Ooh. called to. You know, sometimes this is called sanctification uh, in more reform circles. Um, but but some Christians are called to some form of change in this life. Um, and so, whatever we think about in our theology, if it doesn't have some connection to the actions that we take, uh, we we should we should wonder about uh, you know, to what effect is that theology, uh, or to what good is that theology? You know. Uh, James says that even the demons believe uh, in God, right? So Augustine takes this and says that some believe that God exists, but some trust in Him as God, um, and that trust, he would say, transforms us into the kind of people um, whose actions follow from or or are work in consonance with uh, the things that they believe about God. So I, I could stop there. I have a bunch of other things that I want to say about what Augustine might actually be saying, but if you guys want to respond to that.
1: Yeah, I think my only response, and I, I, I mean, I'm I'm with you on all that. I, I think where this has always been a little difficult for me to wrap my head around, because every Christian is going to, I mean, I think almost everybody who would even call himself a Christian is going to say, yeah, it's not about what we do that makes us Christians, right, in the sense of salvation by works. But then there is there's just that thing about... Um, uh, it, about how we assess our own authentic Christianity, right? Um, uh-huh. Because, of course, you know, there are lots of passages of Scripture which seem to imply, you know, that we judge people by their fruits, uh, by by what we see. Not we, but, you know, that, that that's how we can tell whether or not one is a Christian, so to speak. Uh, the entire book of First John almost seems dedicated to this, like how to examine yourself to see whether you're a believer or not. And with these, there is sometimes this implication that, uh, or there is often an implication that if we are truly saved, then there is true change, right? But here's where I think the confusion comes in. The nature of that change is vague. Um, in other words, it's very hard for us to kind of lay down what is the absolute, like, like so for instance, um, if the nature of the change is that I don't ever sin again, um, then, in a sense, the vagueness is gone. Now I know what the measure is, and if I sin, then I'm not a Christian. And now, I please, not it's not now in this line of thinking. That's not to say that um, by not sinning, I save myself. What I mean is is that this theological stance might say that if Jesus saves somebody, He makes them non sinners, and therefore they don't sin. Now, by the way, uh, to everybody listening, I don't believe this. I'm just saying this because it is a a view, and it's one that is not vague. So I don't believe that. But then what I find myself having a problem doing is identifying how much change is the right amount of change to evidence that one is truly a Christian, right? And, and, And this has a lot of practical importance because when you're in a church community, people fall into sin all the time. And if you're working as a pastor, for instance, you have to deal pastorally with people in their problems people you'll you'll discover people's sins and sometimes they'll tell you about them sometimes other people will tell you about them but you discover these sins and when that happens uh you know of course there's a lot of i think concrete practical ways we're supposed to address these sins um uh you know famously matthew 18 lays out Things to do when somebody's uh, committing a sin against another person. But the difficulty is, is when you look at somebody and you say, well, um, since Jesus saves people um, and changes people, you're not exhibiting the right amount of change. And therefore, we have to call into question whether or not you're a Christian and we excommunicate you from the community and treat you as if you're an unbeliever, right? Because so that's what we do externally. But then I internally, Look at myself, and I don't see certain changes. And in fact, of all the people uh, that are in my life, I'm the one who's most keenly aware of all the non-changes that are take, that aren't going on. You know, right. so it's like right. I see all this, and actually, I don't see all this in, but I see lots of this in. I see more than everybody else. And then I ask myself, wait, does this mean I'm not truly a believer? Um, have I not qualified? Because, of course, since Jesus changes people. Um, and I'm not changed in these thousands and thousands of ways, then does that make me, does that mean I'm not truly a believer? This is a real thing people wrestle with, you know. I rest, I, I I probably don't wrestle with it as much as I used to. Perhaps it's because I'm older and so I'm less uh, motivated by my passions and fears and things than I was when I was younger and had, I don't know, more testosterone or something like that, you know. Um, <clears throat> but... But my point is, is that that for me, this is like the ultimate practical question that Christians have to wrestle with, both internally, when dealing with the question of their own salvation, looking at myself and saying, am I really saved? And externally, meaning when we're working in the church, sometimes we have to disfellowship people, remove them from the community because of certain sin. And in doing so, we consider them unbelievers, not that they necessarily are but Matthew 18 tells us to treat them as such. And so in doing this, it's like, at what point, like where, where are the lines and how do we define the lines? And of course I, and I feel really bad for our audience. I don't think, well, we're not going to be able to just give an answer. I think we're going to be as vague as Augustine, (laughs) but uh, you know, and I think I I don't want to overstate the, this, the, the difficulty in this. I mean, there are plenty of instances when you're when you are interacting with people and you go, yes, this person is doing something unrepentantly that we have to consider as a disfellowshipping sin. Um, and then there are others which we go, oh, they're repentant, they're working, they're trying, they're they're grieving, and we we show compassion and mercy on them. And then for ourselves, you know, I think we have faith and confidence that we're saved in spite of the sin. That we experience, So I don't want to make it sound like such a bleak, horrible thing, but I do have to admit we're not going to come up with just a strictly concrete set of criteria. And Augustine doesn't do that either, and um, the Bible doesn't seem to present it either. Um, I think if there's one thing <clears throat> I would want people to take away from all of this, it's maybe a humility in addressing these kinds of issues. Because it seems to me that Christians can be super flippant in the way that they'll condemn somebody for certain sinful practices and addictions within the church and will just deem them almost offhandedly as non-believers. And if you ask them, they'll say, well, Jesus changes people and Christ produces righteousness. And if there isn't righteousness, you're not really a Christian. And I can I get that. There's lots of scripture to support that. But if you stop and are introspective for even a moment, you would have to apply that to yourself, I should think, and and in applying it to yourself, you would go, oh my gosh, do I not qualify? And maybe I should be a little slower to to rush to judgment over everyone else. Maybe that would be the one takeaway, I guess. Um, but. Well, when we're talking about
0: uh, transformation, like we talked a little bit, Monica clearly had some, some drinking problems. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there, there's something that he talks about that. Um, I, I, I think... You know, separating out what these addictions are, what kind of addictions we're talking about, um, and what kind of things that God changes is probably important. But I thought that this would actually be an interesting way to. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead in the book. So we've talked about. Uh, Augustine, his he has no doubt in his mind that his mom is a Christian. Yeah, um, and and she had this sort of addiction as a child. Um, it seems, or at least while she was younger, we're not exactly sure how long it continued. But the story is about her childhood um, and, and at least while she was still at her parents' home. But at the very end of the book, he says this, which uh, I, I find uh, really fascinating uh, because it actually reminds me a lot of um, sort of more Reformation theology of um, justification, um, putting salvation into more of a legal framework. Um, so you know, there, there's a lot I have just said in those statements, but but let me let me read what I'm talking about. Uh, so on in Book Nine, uh, Chapter Thirty Five. Um, so this is wh- almost almost the very end of the chapter. Um, God of my heart, whom I praise and in whom I live, hear me, setting aside for a little while her good works, speaking of Monica's good works, for which I give joyful thanks to you, I now entreat you to forgive my mother's sins. Hear me, I ask, in the name of our wound's cure, who hung on a piece of wood and intercedes for us as he sits at your right hand. I know my mother busied herself with works of mercy and that from her heart she forgave her debtors uh, their debts. So you know, thinking of the the Lord's prayer, you too forgive her debts if she incurred any more in all those years after the cleansing water of her salvation. Forgive them, Master. Forgive them. I beg you, don't put her on trial. May your mercy triumph over judgment, since your words are true and you promise mercy to the merciful. Um, and, uh, so anyway, but he, she, he, goes on a little bit further. She won't plead that she owes nothing that she won't plead that she doesn't deserve punishment. Uh, cause that way she would lose the case and be turned over, uh, to the wily plaintiff. Instead, she will plead that her debts were paid by the one nobody can pay back. He wasn't a debtor yet. He settled our debts. Um, and so there is this sense in Augustine that clearly his mother had other sins, um, and that, that you know, and he even says like I know that she did good works, I know that she was a debtor, I know that she did these other things, but I also know that she was still a sinner. And what he says is, I he needs someone else to cover those, which is you know typically how we talk about uh, redemption on the cross. Um, and and pay, you know he was he wasn't a debtor yet he settled our debts and it made me think of the the way that Luther talked about you know the at the same time sinner and saint so in some ways to talk about what the difficulty of understanding whether or not you were a Christian based on your transformation um, well you can't necessarily see your transformation you don't nec- and you don't necessarily uh need to be transformed in order to be saved because it's not dependent on what you do it's dependent on uh for 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 Luther it's it's dependent on God seeing you as justified um, and so that was the way in which Luther could feel okay now I would say that that is a misrepresentation of Augustine's actual theology um, of atonement, uh, so so that is a Lutheran progression on Augustine, but nevertheless, it does enter into this realm of, okay, what do we do with the problem of transformed lives, works after salvation? Well, still, even Augustine knows that we're dependent on the mercy of God, um, and even his mother, who clearly sinned, uh, additionally, and did all these works, she still needed the mercy of God. There wasn't a sense in which your wor- uh, that that a person's works um, were enough uh, to sort of earn the heaven because they earn heaven because there's only one who had no debts, and he's the one who forgives debtors. Um, and so you know, so it's just sort of it's sort of interesting because Augustine. Uh, it's interesting to me um, because. Uh, because Augustine sometimes is uh, you know he, he's read in a lot of different contexts, and that one that one actually comes pretty close to um, the way that he'll be interpreted by Luther um, and by the reformers um, and 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 looks a little bit more like that kind of atonement theology yeah. and it also plays into this question of of um, transformation so clearly Monica still had some sins um, after her her you know
2: becoming a Christian yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I I think that um, one sort of, I guess, <gasps> miraculous transformation, <laughs> I mean, maybe it's not, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's a miraculous transformation, but there, at the very least, there is a dramatic transformation that does seem to happen when you become a Christian, which is something, and this is so minimal that, like, if everyone wanted the answer... I'm sorry, this probably isn't the one you were looking for either. <laughs> but at the very least, your value system changes in such a way that certain... Um, when people reprimand you or bring certain things to your attention, you're just actually sensitive to those now. And I know that that may not be like the greatest... You know, thing ever, and you're definitely going to go on sinning, but I think this is at least somewhat consistent with even what we just read, and, and possibly even consistent with that theology of canceling debts, because it's the idea that once you realize someone has canceled your debts for you, if you're truly appreciative of that, and you also are now trying to belong to a community of Christians, you at least are now you have like new dispositions, maybe as a person, uh, as part of your character that you that you slowly form, um, so that if someone says, "Hey, what you just did was prideful or vain," um, whereas before you may not even really care. I mean, yeah, sure, society may not like it, but some people are just jerks in certain ways and proud of it. <laughs> I mean, so there's literally just certain sins that people are very proud of out outside of Christianity. Um, whereas I guess at the very least, you've now gained this new disposition to um, actually care about those things. And then perhaps even really begin to hate them, even if you still struggle with them. So I don't, it's, I know it's not that as amazing as cease to sin forever automatically but i do think it's something and it is important and i you do at least expect that in people um i do wonder about and this this scares me even more um actually it's just sins you just never know about but then i'm not really sure i mean i guess you're you're fine but maybe if other people see those sins in you um you never see i there, there are certain other strange fears I've had, but it, it seems to me that that sort of disposition is important, and it, at the very least, it would hopefully come from appreciating that very sacrifice Christ made, that very cancellation of debt. Um, I don't know, that, that was a little bit of a stretch off of what you just said, Chad, but I thought it was um, an important point, especially since it's... I think how some people do think of this um, idea of changing and it's at least how I think of
1: it. But Well, um, kind of, you know, you know, riffing kind of off that C.S. Lewis in mere Christianity embraces the vagueness and actually says the vagueness is kind of essential um, to what Christian change and sanctification is um, because he basically says look we all are kind of coming from different points and places and he wasn't stating it as if some people are necessarily more or worse sinners than others per se it's just that we all have different inclinations different personalities different kinds of things that ensnare us um different uh kinds of desires and what have you and he says for that reason he says, you know, one particular individual who might look to the rest of society as quite bad um, could have, in fact, or could have, in fact, changed tremendously since his conversion, and could have, in fact, done more with his sanctification than a person who externally seems flawless to society around him. Uh, and, and one of the examples that came to my mind, and I, I'm not going to call this individual out by name, he's a fairly well-known philosopher. Actually, he's a he's a philosophy professor who's a professing Christian. I remember going to a philosophy conference once where he was a presenter and a speaker, and it was pretty clear from the way people interacted with him and from people that I would talk to around the conference that. A lot of people thought of him as arrogant and um, that he was generally disliked. And and I remember just kind of lamenting the fact that this well-known Christian philosopher had such a bad reputation amongst his peers, especially to unbelievers, because I thought it was a bad witness. Uh, And then after coming back from the philosophy department, I was talking with one of my own professors at Boise State who had been a student of that same Christian philosophy prof. And I mentioned how everybody had disdain and dislike for this man. And my professor turned to me and my professor was not a believer and made no connection to religion whatsoever. All he said was, yeah, that guy's a real a-hole. And then he said, but you should have seen him 20 years ago. He was unbelievable. He's an absolute saint now compared to then. And so what he was unknowingly reflecting on is that after this philosopher's conversion to Christianity, he has changed and apparently significantly and had apparently become far more humble and kinder and nicer, you know, and, and, and it just made me think of what C.S. Lewis said, that, that God is in fact changing people and that there is a vagueness to it. And that vagueness is something that should just cause us to not judge, you know, that it it should be something to make us understand that we really are ill-equipped to be able to identify where in their walk somebody is, right? Yeah, well, I think it's an important
0: point about what the nature of the church is. The church is where we live with people day in and day out for their entire lives. um, And presumably somewhere in the life of that church, we will see transformation. Um, so, you know, some of that's the power of living in a community with people that's longer than a 30 second, you know, or a 140 character Twitter response or, you know, something like th- 30 second clip on a YouTube video. And we can say, oh, this person's terrible or this person's great based on some eternal principle, sta- you know, some eternal standard that only the person making the tweet or the video knows. Um, <laughs> and but rather the, you know, the the discipline that is living in a community. Um, and and then you can actually see those minor transformations, um, and you're in a much better place to 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 like appreciate that. Um, I don't know that that may be one small application, yeah. but seems fair. Um, I was gonna so uh, let's see a couple things. One, Augustine um, colors his own transformation in the Confessions as God growing sweet, delightful. Um, and beautiful to him. So he does talk about all of his sins through books uh, one through eight. Interestingly, all of his sins appear to stop at book nine and we see nothing of, of his life post transformation, um, which I think it's important to, to say that. So we're going to read the rest of this book. But it has no other biographical content after the end of this cha- – uh, well, we're going to read the rest of this work. Um, at, in the ancient practice, each sort of chapter is called yeah. a book. Um, so we're going to read the rest of this work, uh, which is four more books, four more chapters, and none of them have to do with his life. Um, so we don't know what exactly his process of uh, sanctification looked like after his um, baptism. Uh, Which I think is important. But what what he what he does want us to know, as he tells us in those nine books, is the difference about his understanding of who God is. Um, And that has, you know, that has caused him a transformation. We do know that he throughout the rest of his life, you know, never had a wife, we do know. You know some of these sorts of things. His long sermons rail against the shows and the theater and this sort of thing. We know some other things about his life. Uh, actually, and one of his uh, students wrote a life of Augustine that includes stuff about his uh, post-baptismal life. But he stops his narrative there. But what he wants us to know is that the scriptures and God and, and primarily humility, humility became a virtue. The one thing that the philosophers can't teach is that God is humble. Yes. Um, and God asks us to be humble. Um, and so that is one of his major contentions in his sermons and in the rest of his corpus, uh, is there are certain things that only Christ can teach and he is willing to learn yeah. them. Um, so that is a critical element of his own transformation. Um, and so it's so other uh, scholars, uh, you know, scholars in the last fifty or so years, hundred or so years, uh, have said that Augustine's transformation that seems to be very immediate and abrupt in the book should actually be understood to be a lot longer. Uh, he just doesn't give you that. Uh, you know, what Brian Dobell is one who's who did that, but he actually talks about even his Christian convictions uh, take longer to be drawn out than their then they're sort of truncated, uh, in the form of this book. And he thinks that the conversion process is probably four or five years. Uh, but, uh, that, that aside, I think we should remember too what Augustine wants you to see in his transformation is now God is sweet. Um, God is humble. Uh, God is delightful and all of the, none of those things were true for him before. Uh, and so that, that also leads into his, uh,